Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. We're especially enthusiastic about today's podcast, which brings poetry to the crucial task of reinventing solidarity. As many of you know, our journal, New Labor Forum, in addition to publishing articles and book reviews, also features the work of some of the most compelling socially engaged poets of the day. Our guest today, Javier Zamora, is a poet whose work has had a major impact on the contemporary poetry scene and on the broader public. At nine years old, Zamora left his home in El Salvador and made his way as an unaccompanied minor through Guatemala and Mexico and across the Sonoran Desert to reunite with his parents in California. He traces this journey in his book, Unaccompanied, from which he'll read today. The winner of multiple poetry awards, he's also a founder of the highly successful UndocuPoets campaign, which helped to open the doors of the publishing industry to undocumented poetry poets. This work earned him the 2016 Barnes and Noble Writer for Writers Award. Welcome, Javier. Hi, Paul. It's an honor to be here, and thank you for having me. Javier, I alluded uh, to the journey which forms the basis of your book. Why don't you tell us that story, if you would? I was born in 1990. There was a war going on uh, in El Salvador. My, both of my parents were 19 when they had me. And my dad left in 1991 and because of the war. And it's left its leanings. And then my mom left because we still couldn't make ends meet. And she left when I was about to turn five. And so from the ages of uh, four till nine, I was raised by my grandparents. And then eventually in 1999, I was trying to reunite with them. And like many immigrants continue to do to this day and how a lot of immigrants have done so in the 90s. I, I like to tell people that I was not the only child or the only migrant at the time from Central America coming in 1999 and eventually after two months, I crossed the Sonoran Desert and was reunited with them in the States. And I'm talking to you now from the same desert because I'm here mm. writing now prose about this journey that I took. And it's interesting. I hadn't been able to return to the landscape because I didn't have a green card. Thankfully, two years ago, I was granted a extraordinary abilities green card. And so now I feel comfortable being here. And yeah. I've still surprised myself at the details 
of the landscape that I remember. And so this is about my try at trying to make it across the border during the summer heat, which I haven't been here for. And this is for the adult who helped me get across. And I only knew him as Chino, so this is for him. Second attempt crossing. In the middle of that desert that didn't look like sand and sand only, in the middle of those acacias, whiptails, and coyotes, someone yelled, La Migra, and everyone ran. In that dried creek where 40 of us slept, we turned to each other and you flew from my side in the dirt, black throated sparrows and dawn hitting the tops of mesquites. Against the herd of legs, you sprinted back toward me. I jumped on your shoulders and we ran from the white trucks, then their guns. I said, freeze Chino, para por favor. So I wouldn't touch their legs that kicked you. You pushed me under your chest and I've never thanked you. Beautiful Chino, the only name I know to call you by. Farewell, your tattooed chest, the M, the S, the 13. Farewell, the phone number you gave me when you went east to Virginia and I went west to San Francisco. You called twice a month. Then your cousin said, the gang you ran from in San Salvador found you in Alexandria. Farewell, your brown arms that shielded me then, that shield me now from La Migra. I was really moved by this extension of empathy for admiration of this, this person who, who helped you get across the border. He happened to be a member of MS-13. So the, the kind of person that sometimes in the United States is called a super predator. And you've got a whole nother view on him, which I, I found so compelling. And I take it he's, he, he's, he died, he was killed. That's what we think, because he yeah. stopped calling. And then we talked to somebody that knew him. And yeah, I want to talk about the term unaccompanied. Mm -hmm. Sure. Because a lot of people here think that these children are coming by themselves. Mm -hmm. And they are because they don't have any parents. But then along the way, you meet people like Chino who help us get across and almost act as like big brothers or as parents of sorts. And it doesn't matter, like he was a teenager. He must have been 19, 21 at the most. And he was just fleeing. And he's a human being like everybody else. And I don't think, I think what's lacking from people's point of views regarding gang members or ex-gang members is that these people don't choose to become gang members. Right. There's a lot of problems in El Salvador and a lot of trauma that hasn't been addressed regarding the war and about growing up without parents. What is a child in El Salvador gonna do but try to find older brothers or older sisters? And it just it's sad that most of those places of comfort and warmth happen to be gangs. 
And of course, he helped you under really difficult circumstances where it might have been much easier for him to not help you. <laughs> uh, yeah. You were nine years old, but he was willing to carry you on his shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. Very, yeah. very, very powerful. Um, talk a little bit about, you've done a lot of reading of your work publicly. What have been some of the responses that you've got? I remember listening to some you speaking at one point about a big reading you did, and I think it was Kentucky. Uh -huh. Do not necessarily, you know, a kind of a reddish audience, let's just say. That, that's still one of the highlights because a lot of poetry and poetry audiences already tend to be left-leaning. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the time I feel like I'm just speaking to the choir. Right. And I got invited to Center College, which is, which is outside of Lexington, Kentucky, rural Kentucky. And a lot of the students were self-identified as Republican. And I, there was this huge auditorium and a lot of them lined up to ask questions. And the best, I think the best compliment that I've gotten thus far is a student who was like, hey, I identify as Republican and I have never heard a story like this. And I had no idea. I, in his mind, he's like, I never knew I don't know any immigrants. And I'm like, no, you you have encountered immigrants before. You, they just didn't tell you that they right. were. And so that's still the highlight of, you know, touring or like reading in all these places. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think of the, the poet William Carlos Williams famously said, uh, what is it? Um, it's difficult to get the news from poetry, but people die every day for want of what is found there. Talk a little bit about what you, what you hope people will find in your poetry. You're doing that a little bit, but uh, yeah. What is it you're, you try to do? And I wanna say, I mean, although he says we rarely find news, in, there's, a, there's a sense in which your poetry does offer some news in addition to a lot more than that. I would think, I think there's a question about audience. For me, I have two people in mind. One, I started writing because when I got to this country, it was very hard for me to find a book of fiction or nonfiction or poetry written by a Salvadoran, even a Salvadoran American born in this country. I was speaking about like a Salvadoran who had done the same thing. And so I set out to try to do that, to write a book that I would have wanted to read as a middle schooler, as a high schooler, as a grown up. So that's what I hope to do. That's like best case scenario, somebody that reads my book, that they see themselves in the pages and that they are seen as a full human being and then that they have the courage or willingness to pick up a pen and also write their story. I um, think especially probably as, an, for there are very few undocumented poets in print, that was a major contribution that you made. Yeah, previously undocumented now, I'm no longer yeah, am. But yes, right. um, there were only two poets that I can think of who had a book of poems, uh, Javier O. Huerta and Yosimar Reyes at the time when I started writing. And that wasn't, that's still not a big number to this no. day. It's happening more and more. Um, but the second aspect of mm -hmm. what I wish the poem, my poems could do is do 
that the story about the Republican kid in Kentucky, mm. somebody who doesn't share my experience and for some reason got assigned the work or was made to be at that reading. But then he saw a glimmer of humanity in these pages that he was willing to be like, oh, wow, I've never knew that this is what people were going through. And then something can happen in the brain. And the best case scenario after something happens in the brain is that then they won't vote Republican again. And they would actually do something for immigrants. So I think that is best case scenario in both cases. So do you, do you have either of those audiences or no audience at all in your mind when you're writing? I think it is have me in mind. It, yeah. And that sounds very selfish or so self-centered, but I'm still writing mm -hmm. for that kid, I think. I'm still writing for the nine-year-old that immigrated here. Mm -hmm. And the nine-year-old that immigrated here that I know best is still myself. I sometimes think of Toni Morrison having spoken about she when she stood for her novels that she always starts with a question that she doesn't know the answer to. Do mm -hmm. you find a process like that for yourself as you write where you're dis you're trying to figure something out? I think the collection as a whole came together with the question, why am I here? Mm. Why am I in this country? Why is my family in this country? Mm -hmm why was Chino immigrating to this country? I think that is, and to this day, that is still the question that I'm trying to answer. Are you getting there? <laughs> <laughs> I bet you're, what you're doing now down closer to the border is revisiting a lot of that. Yes, and the surprise, I think after you ask the question, then you, the other aspect is the surprise. The surprise yeah. now, right. I cannot believe that I went through that. Yeah. As a kid, it is still, it still does not make sense. Yeah. At nine years old. At nine years old and how I survived it. Right. After there have been, I think, close to 4,000 people that have been documented and found dead right. at, at the border. That's the only people that have been found since 1999 to, I think they stopped counting 2019, the numbers that we have now. But that is only the bodies that have been found. Right. So that in the back of my head is still like, how and why? And it's the understanding I never realized or considered myself a survivor. And that is beginning to enter when I talk now. Mm. Because it's like, oh, holy shit, I did survive <laughs> this trauma. Mm. And like a lot of other undocumented immigrants, adults or not, that's what it is. We're all survivors of this machine that is trying to literally kill us and yeah. keep us from coming into this country. Yeah. Or put or put kids in cages, right? It's yeah. just an, yeah. Yeah. Now when you when you got here and you you were like middle school age or so, when you went to college, you went to UC Berkeley, correct? Mm -hmm. And I, I think you told me that you had the opportunity to be part of this Poetry for the People program put together by June Jordan, the acclaimed poet activist. I, I'd love to hear a little bit about that. She was a good friend of mine, but that was, you know, on the East Coast. And uh, so I'd love to hear about how that worked. Wow, I didn't know you two were friends. Very close friends. Yeah, we were wow. both in Brooklyn together. She was actually a teacher of mine also. 
a little earlier than you. <laughs> yeah. uh -huh. I never met her. So she had oh. passed away. She oh, by that point. Away. Mm. Yeah, by that point. Mm. But she helped found this program yeah. at Berkeley. And I think she had just retired when I got to Berkeley when I was a freshman. Oh, that's, that's interesting that, that you two are friends. That touches me because yeah. I don't think that I would... I, I, I wrote before I got to Berkeley. I started writing when I was a senior. But it wasn't until I read the Poetry for the People Blueprint, which okay. she wrote, I think, in the 70s, that and her whole reading, her whole philosophy that is still used in the textbooks for the course and the whole idea that she wanted students to then become teachers of poetry to other students and to the community around the campus. That to me already as a teenager, I was that stereotypical teenager who wore Che Guevara shirts mm -hmm. and was very left-leaning. Mm -hmm. And so that to me was like, oh, wow. American poetry can also be political, which at the time I didn't think it could. I knew that poetry could be political in El Salvador and Latin America and all over the world as it had been, but not here. Mm -hmm. And so finding her voice and her commitment to social justice is what convinced me that I could also do this and that it was okay for me to do this and that poetry is not a luxury and that not only the rich can do this, but we, at the time I was undocumented, that we also need to speak our truths on the page and then hopefully that can find other people. So June Jordan means the world to me. And I know that in that Pope, in that program, um, she got people and after she left, the, the process was even as a young student, you would start teaching, you'd be performing. She really encouraged people to get right out there and do it. So you, were you both performing and teaching in the program? Yes. So first you take the course mm -hmm. and then you have to perform in front mm -hmm. of everybody. And this is a very, <laughs> at the time, it was a very popular class at Berkeley. So you have 150 kids listening to you memorize your poem and perform it in front right. of everybody. And then you yeah. give a presentation. And then if you want to take the second part of the course, in order to become a poet, you need to take a specialized course with other people that want to be teachers and do the same thing on a weekly basis. And then after a year of the program, then you can teach and you have five options. You can teach other college students and you have, you can either teach at the after school programs. You could teach at the local high school. You can teach at the local community college. So it's very immersed into what's around it, which was really amazing for me as an undergrad. So w would you read us another poem? Exiliados. We didn't hold typhoons or tropics in our hands. I didn't reach across the table on our first date, a Cornelia Street Cafe. In my humid pockets, my fists were old tennis balls thrown to the stray dog of love bouncing toward the Hudson down to South Ferry. We didn't hold hands in that cold October wind but the waves 
witness a promise to return to my cratered, deforested homeland and you to your parents sometime in the future. Then us in the subway at 2 a.m. Oh, the things I dreamed. A kiss to the back of your neck, collarbone, belly button, there. To kneel and bow my head, then return to the mole next to your lips and taste your latitude together. Instead, I went home. You touched my cheek. It was enough. I stood remembering what it's like to stand on desert dirt, wishing stars would fall as rain on that huge, dark country ahead of me. I rarely read that poem. And writing it, I don't think I was aware of how the trauma also seeps into different and all aspects of life, especially sex and love. Mm -hmm. It also does that as well. Right. And so I think a successful poem would be a poem that's like an onion, that there are different layers that sometimes we're not even aware of. And for me, I think I wasn't aware while writing it, but now reading it again, I was like, oh, no wonder. I was so young and naive (laughs) that I didn't really, I was writing it, but I wasn't really subconsciously aware of what was going on. I love the fists uh, as tennis balls thrown to stray dogs, a really very, very memorable line. Yeah. Thank you. Gorgeous. Talk to us as we finish a little bit about your, your work today. Some poets don't switch over to another writing form. It sounds like you're working on something like a memoir. Talk, talk about what you're, what you're doing now in Arizona, so close to the border. I think I'll, I'll talk about a twofold project. And for both, I am here. One is I am writing this memoir. It's told in the present tense. It starts on April 4th, which is the day that I left El Salvador. And it ends on June 12th, the day after I was reunited with my parents. And like I mentioned earlier, I haven't been able to be in this landscape because I couldn't legally. Um, And now I can. And so I am here to immerse myself and in other words, re-traumatize myself mm, by being right. in the landscape that brought upon the trauma that I'm that still I care I carry with me. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm here. Another reason. And are you finding it, yourself re re-traumatized, by the way? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, so I drove here. I've also done a lot of uh, trips to the border. Mm-hmm. Because I'm trying to find the exact, for some reason, I don't know why, but I need, again, these questions that we ask ourselves. I'm like, where exactly was it that I immigrated? Which corridor? Um, and so I've been going east of Nogales, west of Nogales. I've gone to Douglas, um, trying to see what feels and what clicks. And it happened. 
at night, I remember being in between a valley, between a range and seeing two cities. And ironically, now I'm very good friends with a writer who also is a former Border Patrol agent. His name is Francisco Cantu. And so me and him, uh, we've gone to the border and he worked in the exact same sector that I crossed through, I think eight years after I crossed. And so I'm pretty sure that I've found where exactly it was. And that has helped with the writing, but has also kept me up at night because I get flashbacks. Not for me, worked more in, in my nightmares. Like I have nightmares of crossing. And so that's one of the reasons that I'm here. Another reason that I'm here is that I have a friend. Well, now he's a friend, a Guatemalan filmmaker who was so moved by the book and my story that he wanted to shoot my progress or trying to do. We had no idea what was going to turn into. But what it's turned into now is that he is the person that has seen the house that I grew up in in El Salvador. He's gone there and he's, he's shot film there. He's gone to my town. We've taken a boat out. He's, he came here to shoot me in the border as well. That sounds weird, but to like shoot film yeah, right, me right. at the border. And he just left like two weeks ago. And now our next step would be to shoot in Guatemala and in Mexico. And along those shootings, I've been here like what, two weeks. I've met very interesting people who are doing very interesting work here along the border. And one of those individuals is uh, uh, Dora Rodriguez, who runs this organization called Salva Vision that has really impacted me in the best way possible because she crossed the border, almost died at the border. She had to be rescued from the desert in 1980. So she was fleeing the first years of the war in El Salvador. She was 19 years old. She's a citizen now, and now she started this organization. And it's like a one woman show. She's the most inspiring person that I've met. She takes calls from people who are in detention. She sponsors people to get into this country. She makes meals that she then drives back across the border to the people that are wow. in camps over there. And it's all like her idea and her mission. And I'm like, she's doing all <laughs> this by herself right. um, that I'm like, I need to do something. Now it is, um, it's become an organization. So she's, is, she's building community with other people yeah. who want to make similar kind of contributions. Yeah, yeah. And it's twofold too. So she goes to El Salvador to educate Salvadorans over there uh. and keep them from immigrating as well as going to Congress and meeting with Congress people and driving food to people who are waiting across the border. And you can look it up, salvavision.org. Wow. If you, you know, if you want to, if you feel so compelled to volunteer or... Or contribute. To donate. To contribute. <laughs> yes. Would you please read us one last poem before we, before we go? Will do. Let's see. I always end my readings with this poem. And what you need to know is that Estero de Jaltepec is the bay where I was born in El Salvador. 
and that como tu is a address to Roca Dalton's poem by the right. same name. And it's, the poem is Instructions for My Funeral. Don't burn me in no steel furnace. Burn me in Abuelita's garden. Wrap me in blue, white, and blue. A la mierda patriotismo. Douse me in the cheapest gin. Whatever you do, don't judge my home. Cut my bones with a machete till I'm fine as dust. Wrap my pito in pennies so I dream of pisar. Please, no priests, no crosses, no flowers. Steal a flask and stash me inside. Blast music, dress to impress. Please be drunk, miss work, y pisen otra vez. Bust out the drums, the army strums. Bust out the guitars, guerrilleros strum, and listen to the war inside. Please, no American mierdas. Caruse the procession dancing to the pier. Moor me in a motorboat. De veras que sea una lancha driven by a nine-year-old son of a fisherman. Scud to the center of the estero de Jaltepec, read como tú and toss pieces of bread. As the motorboat circles, open the flask. So I'm breathed like a jacaranda, like a flor de mayo, like an alcatraz. Then forget me and let me drift. Javier, thank you for joining us. This is terrific. Oh, thank really you for having me. So happy to have the chance to talk to you. Yeah, thank you. Issues like those raised in today's podcast are taken up in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. And to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.